Welcome to Thomson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law, the show that provides practical insights and expert know-how on trending legal issues. No legalese, just expertise. With your host, Craig Vaughn. Welcome to Thomson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law, the show that provides practical legal know-how to make lawyers' lives easier. I'm your host, Craig Vaughn, and I'm thrilled to introduce Kelly Griffith, who is a senior legal editor specializing in e-discovery. Kelly, could you introduce yourself? Hi, Craig. Uh, As you said, my name is Kelly Griffith. I'm a senior legal editor with the Practical Law Litigation Service, and I've been with Practical Law just over a year now, almost 16 months. Before that, I was a a general litigator, a civil defense lawyer uh, with a mid-sized firm based in West Virginia. Great. And so, Kelly, discovery in general can be long, expensive. You know, you kind of have to dig through a lot of small talk. You know, it kind of reminds me of like a kind of a bad first date kind (laughs) of. So how did you get into e-discovery specifically? Yeah, I think I was a little bit of an anomaly uh, amongst litigators and in my firm, at least. Discovery generally, and I think it was only exacerbated by the development of e-discovery as its own sort of niche area within discovery, but it's not something that appeals to many litigators. I I found in my experience that most litigators are drawn to that type of a practice because they enjoy the strategizing and advocacy elements of litigation, whereas discovery and, as I said, particularly e-discovery seems more of like a a technical administrative distraction and, as you suggested, a very time-consuming and expensive distraction at that. So, Um, It's not something that uh, very many folks were sort of raising their hand to to take on. I saw it candidly as sort of an opportunity within my firm to sort of develop some expertise within the litigation department and be an internal resource for all things e-discovery. So that was sort of um, what caught my eye initially was as a professional opportunity, but it also really just... Um, the structure of it, the organization, the project management type aspects of e-discovery kind of appealed to me. And and also, I think, seeing the bigger picture, seeing how this sort of more technical administrative aspect of litigation really does go hand in hand with developing and implementing a strong theme and a strong litigation strategy and, and being the best advocate you can be for your client. So if you properly leverage these technologies then you really can efficiently find information that that helps you with the fun part, that helps you when you're you know, in a hearing, when you're taking a deposition, when you're at trial. So it's not, um, it's not just a distraction. It's not just an obstacle. It's not just something the rules require you to do. It really can um, be a strong building block, like I said, with the fun parts of litigation and, and what appeals to most litigators. Thanks a lot for that, Kelly. You mentioned that the technology part might, you know, have some of the appeal. Uh, I can imagine, you know, circling back to your point about how, you know, certain litigators, they want to go stand in front of the judge and, and wave some sort of wonderful silver bullet that they've found via discovery. Case dismissed, everybody walks out of the courthouse with confetti falling from the sky. So they kind of get all the reward based on all of your hard work. So speaking of technology, how has it changed your practice over the last few years? Yeah, I started practicing in in 2004, and a lot has changed in in the 13 years that have passed. Um, You know, e-discovery certainly predated that. I don't think it was a a common term at the time. And even when I was in law school, it it certainly isn't something that I was hearing about. 
during my civil procedure course. But, you know, some e-discovery is old, you know, databases, microfiche, um, you know, just even your standard DVD, thumb drive, floppy disks, backup tapes, all of those types of data um, have existed you know, long before we started talking about e-discovery as its own discipline. So, you know, any kind of electronically stored information really falls under the umbrella of e-discovery, and some of it's old and some of it's new. Um, and in the past 13 years, I think probably from just our, you know, our civilian lives, social media is the one that pops out as having developed the most quickly and how how that's integrated into to our daily lives, the way we communicate. You know, that has sort of blossomed in that time. It's, it began and then has certainly changed and developed at a, an amazing pace. So keeping up with, you know, where are people communicating about their personal lives when that's relevant to litigation? Where are they having professional communications when it's, you know, commercial litigation? All of those things are constantly evolving. So staying abreast of how folks are doing business and how they're communicating and, and you know, handling transactions even in their, their daily personal lives that's something that's become relevant that that probably wasn't on a, a litigator's mind, at least as much front of mind, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned social media. You know, back in 2004, you know, I think I had a MySpace account, like those things were popping up. I'm not too sure if Facebook was around yet. But, you know, social media was very much a kind of a person-to-person sort of vehicle for the long time. But that's totally changed. Just recently this year, I was on the market to buy a new tent, like a really nice tent. And I corresponded with a couple of companies, you know, via social media. So it's really evolved from this person-to-person thing to this, you know, consumer-to-business and even business-to-business sort of a vehicle. So are you seeing more and more chats and messages coming up as things that you might want to try to discover? Absolutely. And that's a really good point and question about, you know, how social media has transitioned from a more, you know, personal social networking type of platform to, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine, a, you know, a business that doesn't have some sort of social media presence at this point. And, I mean, you can easily conceive of even a case in which, um, you know, a product defect case and companies are constantly promoting their, their new products, existing products on a variety of social media platforms. So what representations were they making about, you know, this particular product when they were marketing it on Facebook or when they had it on Twitter or Snapchat or whatever they may be using to promote, you know, their products, all of that can become relevant even in a commercial case. And then, you know, the other scenario where where folks tend to sort of understand pretty easily how social media becomes relevant to so much litigation is the personal injury type of case. So when you have claim for pain and suffering um, as part of a personal injury case, then, you know, the defendant, the defense counsel often want to see how active is this plaintiff who's claiming that they have a debilitating injury as a result of the slip and fall? You know, if they're water skiing, you know, having posting a video or a photo of themselves water skiing on the weekend, um, at the same time, they're asserting this claim that they, you know, their quality of life is so significantly diminished because of an injury, then that can very obviously be relevant to, to the litigation. So those types of cases that are, you know, sort of ripe for social media discovery more and more cases are falling into that bucket because of, you know, the expanding way the business world is using social media. And then another development beyond social media is is what's frequently called the Internet of Things. And that is, um, that sort of is a blanket phrase or category used to describe 
all of these devices that now have some sort of data recording component. So Fitbit is sort of the easiest one to point to. You know, we, we used to just take a walk and now we have a record of the walk, where we went, how long it took us, how many steps were involved, how, what the elevation change was, our GPS coordinates at various times, how many calories we burned. I mean, you can get all of that from what used to just be an undocumented walk around your neighborhood. So all of this data that's now being recorded and stored has the potential to be discoverable depending on the nature of the litigation. So, you know, if someone claims, uh, you know, if it's a, a car accident case, you know, what their Samsung refrigerator recorded about when water was dispensed from the, the, you know, the door of the refrigerator probably doesn't matter. But, you know, if the question is whether somebody was home or not at a certain time in a criminal case and your Samsung refrigerator has recorded some activity about, you know, the refrigerator's use at a certain time, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, that could be meaningful. So this, you know, onslaught of data recording appliances and devices in our lives are all creating information and maintaining information and storing it to various degrees. And depending on the nature of the litigation in which you're involved, it could end up being relevant and discoverable. Very interesting. You're painting a nice picture. I'm imagining a Samsung refrigerator on the stand, you know, uh, <laughs> being asked questions in front of a jury. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how realistic that type of scenario could be. Okay, so you've talked about how social media platforms have changed, and even the devices that we use are, you know, going to start pulling in all sorts of information, whether it be, you know, visible information or meta information. So you always kind of have to keep on top of those sorts of things. What about the rules themselves? Do they change frequently? The rules in this area, and the most frequently referenced rules in the e-discovery world are the federal rules of civil procedure, of course. And they have changed more often with respect to e-discovery than I think for other issues. So, I mean, it, it, the process that is involved in rule amendments is, is elaborate, to say the least, and, and it takes years. But, I mean, if you compare it to amendments that have happened or been implemented for other reasons for, you know, to relate to things other than e-discovery, it certainly is pretty frequent. So the 2006 amendments were sort of the first wave of major rule amendments that were designed to tweak the rules so that they specifically addressed electronically stored information. So, you know, prior to that and even after that, a lot of the rules as written about discovery generally could have applied to electronic data just as they did to hard copy documents or physical evidence. But the 2006 amendments really tried to to address where the rules as written maybe didn't apply to electronic data as easily. So that was the first effort. And then in December of 2015 was really the second effort to address e-discovery, electronically stored information, a little more head-on. So there are rules that some of them by their plain language apply only to electronically stored information. They don't apply to hard copy documents or other physical evidence. Um, and then there are some rules that apply equally to both. So the rules have evolved, you know, it seems like probably molasses to a lot of other industries or, or areas, but in terms of, you know, how quickly the, the um, procedural rules typically change, it actually is a pretty decent pace um, when you look at how they've evolved to address e-discovery. And then that's just speaking to the federal rules, and state rules really have varied. Some of the states are quick to pick up 
on the federal rule revisions and take those same revisions and incorporate them into their state rules if their state rules track the federal rules. Others have sort of tried their own thing and gone a different way. And then some are still just kind of sitting back waiting to see if this e-discovery thing is really going to catch on. So states vary a little bit more, but um, the federal rules have the rules committee and various judges and and uh, many, many practitioners are all kind of doing their best to try to keep the rules up and applicable to the technology as it develops. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. So obviously, you're going to have great job security writing about this very dynamic, you know, area of law. Um, how could a litigation generalist, you know, somebody who doesn't really specialize in e-discovery, how could they, you know, best leverage the resources that you write about? Yeah, I, and this is, I think this is something that a lot of litigators and firms are facing is this does change so quickly. And, you know, they do have a full-time job already, which is managing their caseload and just litigating it as they always have. So adding on this burden of, you know, becoming an e-discovery expert is certainly pretty daunting and, again, may not even be something that appeals to them because of its sort of technical nature. But, you know, one of the things we do is provide resources to folks to quickly get them up to speed. So our resources try to be very pointed to say this is what you actually need to know to complete this task or this is what this term means. E-discovery terms... I think sort of when people start to kind of dip their toe into the water and accept that, okay, I've got to dive in a little bit and figure out this e-discovery thing, there are certain terms you see flying around pretty regularly. Metadata is like e-discovery 101. People start using the term metadata. They may not fully understand what it means or how they can use it or why they need it or if they need it, but you'll start hearing folks throw around that term when they're um, just starting to familiarize themselves with the area. But there's a lot more than that. Understanding what you really should be negotiating with your opposing counsel at a 26F conference, for example. You know, the rule outlines what you're supposed to talk about, but actually having enough of an understanding to have a meaningful negotiation and come out of that conference with a usable agreement, it takes some time. And so our resources try to kind of give you that that primer and enough detail that you can not just meet the requirements of the rule, but also come out of it with a really useful agreement or understanding or at least discussion of how you're going to handle e-discovery in a case so that so that you're not spinning your wheels. You're not wasting your client's money. You're not wasting your own time doing more than you need to do, but you're also not taking risks. You know, you're not taking shortcuts without appreciating, you know, what the pros and cons of a particular approach are. So our resources try to give you that background that you need to um, to make the right decisions for your case, to know how to talk to a vendor if you are going to use an e-discovery vendor to um, help you preserve data or collect it or process it or review or produce it, any stage of the e-discovery workflow. If you want to use a vendor for that, then we give you a very direct list of questions that says, this is what you need to know about your vendor and you need to know if they are capable of these tasks how they handle data security, how they handle confidentiality, all of these things. So it's really kind of cutting through, you know, maybe the the background, the history, the policy of how e-discovery has developed, which is interesting and certainly valuable to know. But when you're in the middle of a case and you need to get something done or you have a 26F meeting next week, you really just need to know what do I need to know to complete this task. And so we kind of try to cut to the chase, I guess and arm you with the information you need to handle those things effectively. 
And I understand that these negotiations that you enter in with uh, opposing counsel, I mean, that's can end up having a win-win situation, right? Because clients on both sides want to spend as little amount of money as possible. And if you come up with a clear plan, again, you may both may be able to spend less time on things that might be subject to being discounted or even being written off. Uh, do you find that clients in particular to e-discovery or discovery in general try to push back on their firms? I have certainly had that experience when I was practicing. Um, it certainly depends on the client and how familiar they are with e-discovery being, you know, a necessary part of litigation. If they've been through this before, then they sort of expect it. But you also have many clients who, you know, you may be the first lawyer to tell them, we need to hire a vendor so that when we collect your email, you know, we make sure X, Y, and Z metadata is preserved and, you know, maintained and we're able to produce it later. So if you're the first lawyer who's telling a client that these expenses are are necessary and inherent in the litigation, then you can certainly expect, we'll say a little bit of hesitation, (laughs) to put it delicately. Um, So, you know, the best thing you can do, what I heard from clients most often, and particularly clients who, who this was a little bit of, you know, unknown territory, is... They wanted to be able to have some predictability in their costs. So the benefit of knowing what to expect was really a little bit better than getting the lowest cost. So they just wanted to have some predictability there. So to the extent firms or lawyers are able to incorporate e-discovery expenses into some sort of alternative fee arrangement or fixed fee, then I found that to be welcomed. That being said, there's upfront work that needs to be done if you're going to know what a reasonable fixed fee may be. Um, and so that involves you know, tracking your e-discovery spend in various types of cases, understanding about what it's going to cost to preserve and collect from any particular custodian. And certainly there's always a range. You know, you can't predict with, with certainty. But tracking your e-discovery spend in cases really gives you a great foundation to come up with you know, a fixed fee proposal for the next similar case that comes along, whether for that client or another. So I found that to be a a helpful way to kind of break through uh, with a client who was a little hesitant about diving in. And then on the other end, sometimes you'll have clients who'll say, oh, we'll handle it. So yeah, we know, we know you need our email, you need our, you know, IM chat histories, you need this project file, you need this personnel file, we'll handle it, we'll just send it to you. Um, And so some clients may see handling it internally on their end, maybe with their IT department, as a way to save a little bit of money. And that certainly can be the case. And in some cases, that is a, a completely acceptable way to do it. But the sort of conundrum for the lawyer, the outside counsel on in that situation is, you know, the lawyer is the one who's ultimately signing these discovery responses and making the representations to the court. So... You just need to make sure that you understand how they're doing it and that they're doing it in a defensible way and that they're maintaining the integrity of the data as they collect and copy and you know transfer it. So that can be a, a sticky situation as well um, between the lawyer and the client. Let me ask you this. Earlier, you were talking about the different stages uh, of e-discovery. Do you have a favorite stage? <laughs> Um, it's going to make me sound ridiculous to have a favorite stage of e-discovery, but um, the one that I think is probably least understood, but really where 
I guess the magic happens is is processing. Um, and I, I mentioned earlier, sometimes you'll hear folks start to throw around e-discovery lingo as they you know dip their toe into the water. Um, and, and processing is one of those e-discovery terms that folks throw around and, and maybe don't know what it means right away. Um, and it's also a term that people can kind of use to mean different things. But basically, it is the stage between collecting data and then when you actually have it in your document review platform and are ready to review it. So once you collect data from its, its original source, so whether that's somebody's inbox or a database or a backup tape or an archive or whatever from a social media platform, a, a smartphone, so you've collected the data and then you have all this data on a device or in the cloud or wherever it may be, well, you have to get it into your review platform so that you can actually start searching it or sorting it or reviewing it and coding it and producing it or using it as your own exhibit. So that middle ground of processing is what takes the, the sort of original native data and extracts from each file information about that file. So from an email, you know, an email may just be one file, but once you process it, you can then search for it by sender, by recipient, by the date or time it was sent, whether there was a read receipt, if it has attachments, what the subject line was, the actual content of the email itself, um, an attachment name. So you can search by all of these things, sort that way so you can get all of your emails in chronological order or consolidate an email thread. So if there's an email conversation that's been going back and forth for you know two weeks among a group of people, you can identify which emails belong to that same email thread or email string or conversation and group them together for review, which makes that obviously much much easier to understand the context of the discussion. So without processing, you basically have loose files. And so processing lets you take those files, extract the helpful information about them, and then you can use those for sorting and searching. So there's a lot else that can happen during processing. Um, deduplication, when you remove duplicate files from a data set. Denisting, which is sort of taking out some of the, what most of us would kind of think of as trash files. I mean, they don't have content. They're not substantive. So they're on your computer. They help your, your programs run properly. They help you, um, you know, see files or use different software programs, but they don't actually have substantive content and so rarely are relevant in litigation. So there are a lot of different things you can do during processing. It's going to depend on your processing tool and your vendor, exactly what processing functions are available and how you're charged for them. So is it a charge that they include with the collection fee or do you pay separately and do you pay based on the volume of data or do you pay based on custodian? What kinds of file types can they handle during processing? What information are they able to extract from different types of files? So the information you can extract from an email message is different than the information you can extract from a Microsoft Excel file. So all of these you know, variables to processing can certainly make a difference to how useful it is to you, but it, it really is what, what allows you to, to leverage the benefits when you're in a review setting, when you're reviewing documents or you're wanting to produce documents. So I, I think processing is really what makes e-discovery such an opportunity for litigators. And unfortunately, it's also one of the, the least understood phases of the workflow. So that's probably the one I try to share with people who are getting started, I try to make sure they understand that early on. 
I don't think that sounded ridiculous at all. <laughs> very, very well said. So it sounds like, you know, the, the pool that you play in is very wide. It's very deep. Clearly, you have all the answers in your head. As we briefly talked about, I, how I, I could see how a law firm litigation generalist, you know, they would need those answers, you know, at, at two o'clock in the morning when they're around the, you know, shining a flashlight around the office looking for them. Uh, if they only had an online tool to get to what was in your head, that would be great. And it seems like, you know, in-house counsel also who would be producing all of this content, both from uh, a market-driven what social media platform are people using now to the rules changing to understanding very, very technical things. I can see how it have really mass appeal to a lot of our subscribers. Mm-hmm. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for giving us a practical down the hall, hey, Kelly, what do I really need to know type of conversation. I really appreciate your time. Great. Thanks so much, Craig. It's been a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of our show. I want to thank our guest, Kelly Griffith, Senior Legal Editor at Practical Law. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. And if you like what you heard, please rate us in iTunes. Until next time, I'm Craig Vaughn. This has been another edition of Thomson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find both Thomson Reuters Practical Law and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Thomson Reuters, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.